Father, we are so honored to be here, to be in your presence, to come and worship you. We worship you, Lord. We lift your name on high to the highest place. Jesus, you are exalted. We exalt you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the coming King. You reign in our lives. You reign in our hearts. And you reign in this church. We just want to say that, God. That you are the King. You are the Master. You are the Lord of lords. And we honor you. We want to be about what you are about. Not what what we are about, but what you are about, Lord. We want what we are about to be what you are about. Whatever barriers there may be, Lord, would you remove them by your Holy Spirit? And just as Tom mentioned, from the very beginning of worship, Lord, he read Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. And that's what we ask for today and every day. God, would you speak to us? So at this time, I just want to invite you to take a moment to pray and ask God to speak to you this morning. Pray and ask God to remove any hindrances from hearing his voice this morning. And now I ask that you pray for me, that God would use me to speak to you this morning. Amen. Amen. Last week, uh, I spoke on the topic of revival. And... um, The reason why we talk about it so much here at Trinity is because revival has been spoken over this church. Revival has been the desire in this church to see God move in this church, to see those who are far from God come close to God, to see God move, to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is something we desire to see. I believe this desire, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It was, it was here right from the beginning. God placed this desire in the hearts of the people at Trinity. Right from the very beginning, when this was a farm. I've, I spoke about this. Many of us know about this story. This used to be a farm. In fact, I just found out that the zoning of this property is still agricultural. It's zoned agricultural. Okay? So, um, the farmer who owned this property... He prayed and asked the Lord, and he said, Lord, let this land be used to preach your gospel. And God honored that prayer years later, and he planted this church here. God has a purpose for Trinity, and we talked about that last week. We've talked about it, I'd say, several times a year, just as a reminder. God's doing something here. God's going to do something here. And we talked about the presence of God and how important it is to honor God's presence. We looked at a character in the Bible named Obed-Edom. 
And uh, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we talked about how Obed-Edom was kind of like a, a movie extra, right? The storyline of 2 Samuel chapter 6 is about the presence of God. It's about the Ark of the Covenant moving from where the Philistines were to Jerusalem. And during that storyline, Obed-Edom is just this extra in this movie, so to speak. And But his part, as short as it was, was so important. And it's important for us it's important for the body of Christ. And if you recall, when we were looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, just before the part where Obed-Edom was introduced, there was a guy that was mentioned by the name of Uzzah. And Uzzah had irreverence for the presence of God. He had disdain towards the presence of God. And what had happened is he went out and he touched the ark. And in the Hebrew, it says he irreverently did that. It was out of disdain. It was out of a lack of respect. He touched the ark and he was struck down dead. And we talked about this and how it's important for us to honor God's presence. And a part of honoring God's presence is recognizing what he is doing. Recognizing when God is doing something in our midst. And it may sound easy for us to do that, but acknowledging God's action around us is not always easy. It can be very difficult at times. There's a joke that, I, that I've told in the past, and I'd like to share it again, it's, but the details are a bit different, okay? Here's the joke. So there's this dude, okay? Floodwaters hit his town, the waters are rising, and he's on the rooftop of his house. And he's praying to God for help. God, help me. Help me. Suddenly, a man in a rowboat comes by, and he shouts out to the man on the rooftop, jump in the boat. I'll save you. And the man on the rooftop says, no, no, that's okay. I I'm praying to God. God's going to save me. Don't worry about it. And so the guy in the rowboat rows away. Okay. Well, the waters are rising and rising more. And soon after, a, a motorboat comes by. And there's a person in the motorboat. And the motorboat driver looks at the man on the rooftop and says, Jump in, I'll save you. And the man on the rooftop says, No, it's all good. I'm praying to God. God will save me. And reluctantly, the man in the motorboat went away. Well, the floodwaters were rising even more. And suddenly a helicopter comes by and the helicopter pilot drops a rope and says, grab the rope, quick, I'll save you. And the man on the rooftop says, it's all good. No thanks, I'm praying, I have faith, God will save me. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Soon the waters rose and it just overtook the whole town and the man on the rooftop drowned. And so now he's in heaven and he gets to heaven and he says to God, God, what is the deal? I had faith in you. Why didn't you save me? To this, God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Right? I find this joke to be so indicative of how we could totally miss what God is doing around us. We could be praying for something and totally miss the fact that God's answering that prayer. We could miss it. Amazing things could be happening. In fact, amazing things could be happening in the church. And we could totally miss it. 
We could be praying, like how our church is praying, for revival to happen. And revival could be happening in a church, but not everyone would see it. In fact, some would totally miss it. Some would become blinded or distracted from seeing God move. Is that fascinating? Jesus encountered this as well. The Son of God encountered this very thing when he was on the earth among the Jewish people. Have you ever thought to yourself, or has anyone ever asked you a question, hey, if you could have been around in any time in history, when would that be? Right? How many of you have answered, oh, I would have been, I would have loved to have been in the time of Jesus. Right? How amazing would that have been to see my Savior, the treasure of my heart, face to face. I would have loved to see Jesus. Right? How many of you have said that? I mean, I've said that. It would have been awesome to walk among them. But the reality is, not everyone saw Jesus for who he was. Isn't that fascinating? Not everyone saw Jesus for who he was. Some could not see God moving in their midst. That's incredible. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said this, Seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Jesus said this when the disciples asked him, you know, why do you speak in parables, Jesus? He says, well, because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Jesus was referring to the people who could not see what God was doing and could not hear what God was saying through Jesus. The Son of God, God in human form, was walking in the midst of the people in Jerusalem, in Judea, healing the sick. The lame are walking again. The blind are seeing again. The deaf are hearing again. Lazarus was called out of the tomb. You would think if you see things like that, people would say, surely he's the Son of God. Look at what's happening. But church, that didn't happen. Not everyone saw that as God moving. In fact, many people rejected Jesus. Fascinating. And among the people who couldn't see Jesus for who he was were the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Pharisaical, it was actually a movement of Judaism. And this movement, it had a really noble cause. They wanted to live holy and righteous lives. That's what they wanted to do, right? They wanted to stick to the scriptures and the traditions that they knew, that they made, because they wanted to honor God in that way. And so at the heart of the Pharisaical movement was a good thing. But something happened. Their zeal for purity and holiness did something, it corrupted something, to the point where they rejected God's plan for humanity. They rejected Jesus. So what is that? What does that mean about their pursuit of holiness and righteousness and purity? It must have been wrong because they didn't see Jesus. Something distracted them from seeing Jesus for who he was. 
We're seeing God doing amazing things in their midst. And today, I want to talk about what that something was. I want to talk about how that same spirit that was in the Pharisees is fully operational, alive and well in the body of Christ today. And the title that I want to place on that blindfold that prevents people from seeing God at work is the religious spirit. The religious spirit. Now, some of you may ask, well, where's that in the Bible? Where is that in the Bible? Well, you won't find the actual words religious spirit in the Bible. Okay, you're not going to see Paul saying, Be a, beware of the religious spirit or Do not be overcome by the religious spirit. Paul doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't cast out the religious spirit. So it's not there. The words religious spirit aren't in the Bible, just as the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But the truth of it definitely is in the Bible. The concept is there. And the concept of of the religious spirit is in the scriptures. And the way the Bible outlines the religious spirit is it outlines the symptoms of the religious spirit. It outlines what it looks like when someone is operating out of the religious spirit. It's like a person who comes down with a mysterious illness. At first, you have no idea what's wrong. It's like, what's going on? It's just something's just not right. But then suddenly the symptoms start to show up and through the through seeing what symptoms there are, you know, high fever or whatever, you can begin to diagnose what sickness it is. And in the same way, the religious spirit is like that. The symptoms of someone with a religious spirit are outlined in the Bible. And it's outlined in a couple places. In Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11, 37 to 52, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, this passage, these passages this week and next week uh, to really um, look at what the symptoms of the religious spirit are so that we can deal with it. I just want to make something really clear, okay? We all, every one of us, are susceptible to the religious spirit. We all have it. We all struggle with it. So my intention, please hear me well, my intention in preaching this message isn't to heap condemnation on you. It's not. My intention is to outline the symptoms of the religious spirit so that we can deal with it in our lives. That way we will be in a better position to not miss what God's doing in our midst. I would hate it if we missed it. If God started moving, which he already is moving, very amazing ways here, I would hate for us to miss it and become like the Pharisees. To be blinded by what God's doing in our midst. Okay? So, here we go. How do we spot the religious spirit? Well, in Matthew 23, in our modern translations, there's, there's a title over Matthew 23. It says, The Seven Woes of the Scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is outlining the seven woes. In other words, he's outlining the characteristics of the, of the religious spirit. And the first symptom is this. Preach loud, practice not. Okay? The first symptom of the religious spirit that I want to talk about is this. Preach loud, practice not. Matthew 23 verse 3 says, For they preach 
but do not practice. They preach, but do not practice. Have you ever met a shoulder? A shoulder? Do you know what I'm talking about? A shoulder? What is a shoulder, you ask? It's a person who shoulds on people. Right? Oh, for instance, oh, they should totally do it like that. Why should they do that? They should do it this way. Those people should do this for the Lord. Those people shouldn't do that. They should do this. The pastor should fill in the blank. The church should fill in the blank. Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with finding something that needs to happen, especially if there's some form of injustice happening. Yeah, we got to call it out. We should take care of the, the lost, the broken, the needy. The, we should do that. The problem is when we say we should and do nothing about it, that's a problem. That's a symptom of the religious spirit. Anyone could should. Anyone can do it. It's easy. My kids can do it. Ezra, he's three. He can do it. Okay? Anyone can do that. It's one thing to say something should happen. It's another thing to make it happen. Okay? And so, to some extent, it's good that we call out what needs to happen. But shoulding goes foul when the person begins to constantly find fault with others. Constantly fault-finding but being totally unaware or ignorant to their own issues. Shooters have solutions for people or things, but will not help make the solution happen. They have extremely high expectation on others. Matthew 23, verse 4, the very next verse, Jesus says this, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, people with the religious spirit have unrealistic, highly idealized expectations on others. Couple that with a lack of empathy. Do you know anyone like that? Is this sounding like I'm holding up a mirror in front of you? Listen, this is something, if this is something that you struggle with, it's likely that you have a symptom of the religious spirit. And again, I don't say this to heap condemnation. We all deal with this to some extent. But we need to deal with it because it can become a blinder to what God is doing in our lives. So what do I do if that's me? Well, here's the solution. Remind yourself that you're not perfect. (laughs) Right? Remind yourself that you're not perfect. You and I have shortcomings. And if you can have patience on yourself... Extend that patience toward others. If you can have compassion on yourself, extend that compassion towards others. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the next time this should-ing happens, when you start should-ing on someone, pause for a moment, ask God to give you the eyes to see the people or the person the way he sees them. Ask God to give you the eyes to see 
how he sees them. Ask God to give you the eyes to see the church the way he sees them. Anyone can say something about the church. Let me tell you something. I used to have such a rotten attitude towards the church to the point where I didn't go to church. I didn't want to go to church. I'm like, Lord, why would I go to church? There's so many things wrong with the church. But you know what? You know what I found? There is no such thing as a perfect church. <laughs> There's no such thing as a perfect church. Right? But it just sours everything and clouds everything. And I can't see what God is actually doing. I only see the faults and the, the things that are wrong. Totally blinded to the things that are going right. You know, God is a God who extends grace and compassion and mercy and forgiveness towards me. And his calling upon us is to imitate him, to extend that grace and forgiveness and mercy towards others, including the church, including those around us, right? When we ask God to give us eyes to see people for how he sees them, often what happens is this. God may give you an insight into why a person doesn't act or behave in the way that you want them to. God may give you an insight as to why that's happening. What's the background of why they're always in a sour mood and they should be this way? Well, look at their life. You know, they're going through a hard time. God would often give you an insight into that, and you're moved to compassion rather than should-ing, right? God may give you insights into why the church cannot make things happen the way you think it should happen. He may even ask you to fill the void that you see. So part of the solution is to say, God, I see this thing here. This should happen. Pray for that to happen rather than just shooting. Preach loud and practice loud. Symptom number two, people-pleasing. Matthew 23, verse 5 says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. The Pharisees did all their deeds to be seen by others. We human beings enjoy being complimented or honored, some more so than others. And although it can be harmless, there's a danger in becoming consumed by the need to be praised the need to be praised. The Pharisees were like this. Okay? They wore elaborate garments, long tassels that showed how holy they were and how much they prayed. They sat in places of honor so that people could see them as holy, righteous, and godly. Right? The Pharisees loved it. They had this all-consuming need for that. thing is, we can get to that place as well. We can get to that place of having this all-consuming need to have other people think great about ourselves, right? 
We, we can become obsessed with what other people may think of us. And out of this need, a person performs. They become a performer. In front of people, there will be one way, but when the eyes of the masses are off them, they're a totally different way. Totally different way. And all their energy is put into the show, put into what other people are going to think of me. And then when the eyes of the people are off, people pleasers, they crash hard, and they can be miserable to be around. Listen, the reason why I say this is because that's me. This is a struggle that I have that I need to work on daily with the Lord. I struggle with this. And I know many of us do as well. It can certainly affect our Christian walk. Because for the people pleaser, the Christian walk becomes about performance. It becomes about how well we do the walk. How holy I can make myself look. It's all about how I can make myself look as a good Christian. You know, how well I can recite the scriptures, how well I could talk theology, how well I could, you know, quote doctrinal statements, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing God's word, okay? It's imperative for us. We need to know God's word. It's good to memorize God's word. There's nothing wrong with doctrine and theology. It's noble to seek to be holy. These are good things. But if all of that, if my scripture memory and scripture knowledge is all about appearance and not as a means to intimacy with God, there's a problem. My scripture reading, scripture memorizing, theology reading, all of that should be a means to intimacy with God. If it's not that, it's a people-pleasing thing and it's a part of the religious spirit. Ultimately, this people-pleasing symptom of the religious spirit can cause pride to swell up. Especially if you're somebody who performs very well. Right? You just have a good memory of the scriptures. You can quote things frontwards, backwards. Pride can swell up. And that's where the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Right? Because it does. It puffs up, but love edifies. And what happens to people pleasers who have this, they have the tendency to judge other people, to look down upon others, and the Pharisees did this. Does this sound like anyone to you? Is this also like I'm holding up a mirror in front of you? Again, please, I'm not saying this to heap condemnation so that you and I can deal with this. I need to deal with this. You and I can deal with this to be in a better position to recognize God's work in our midst. Solutions. Well, we need to remember something. People pleasers, the performers, there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn God's grace and salvation. Nothing. You can't do anything to earn it. Our, if our salvation and our standing with God were based on works, you and I would be dead. We can't do it. 
That is why God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin so that through him we would be saved. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. There's nothing you and I can do to be in the right standing with God. Jesus did it for us. Romans 3, 22 to 24 says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We all need redemption. And we receive that redemption through Jesus Christ, justified by his grace. So we need to stop judging people and start loving people the way Jesus did. Also, remember, people pleasers, you can't please everybody. This is such a futile thing to chase after, to receive the praise and approval from everyone. It's impossible. It's futile trying to chase that. Don't waste your energy trying to seek the approval and the praise of people. It's a never-ending pursuit. You'll burn out and you'll crash hard. Trust me. I've been there. Instead, stand firm in the mercy and the grace of God. Stop performing and start being. Stop performing and start being. Stand in the identity that God has given you. You are in Christ. Christ gave you and I a new identity. Therefore, you are not your failure. People pleasers, performers have a very hard time with failure. It's unacceptable. And we're going to touch more upon this next week. But for today, what I want to say to you is this. You are not your failure. You are in Christ. Focus on Christ, not your failure. When you focus on your failure, it becomes so unbearable that we have to deflect it and look at the failure in others. That's what we do, right? I just just can't bear with this. And so it's so easy. Just deflect it and see all the failures of all the other people. And we begin to should and we begin to continue to people please. It's a dangerous cycle. It's what the religious spirit does in our lives. Pointing out other people's faults while making myself look good. It's a classic combo of the religious spirit. It's what the Pharisees did, right? They tried to find fault with Jesus, right? The Pharisees tried to find fault with Jesus while hyping themselves up, making themselves look holy and righteous. It's the religious spirit. Now, next week we're going to look at more of the symptoms of the religious spirit, but I want to—I just want to end with this, uh, close with this quote from revivalist Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, it says this, The kingdom of God is a kingdom which is to come, yes. But it is also a kingdom which has come. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. 
The kingdom of God is in every true Christian. He reigns in the church when the church, when she acknowledges him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is yet to come. Now, we must always bear that in mind. Whenever Christ is enthroned as king, the kingdom has come. So that while we cannot say that he is ruling over all in the world at the present time, he is certainly ruling in that way in the hearts and the lives of all his people. That's the vision for Trinity. That we become a church that seeks the kingdom of God coming and manifesting in our midst. The evidence of God's rule and reign are around us. We're seeing it here through salvation, through healing, through being set free from all sorts of things in our lives. The evidence of God's rule and reign, the evidence of his kingdom is among us. Let's not allow the religious spirit to blind us from seeing that. Okay? I want to close with prayer. Let's pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O Spirit within me and cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. God, we welcome you in this place. We enthrone you in this place. Place. We honor your presence in this place. We truly do, Lord. We want to see you, Jesus, exalted to the highest place. And Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us and renew us from any religious spirit now. We ask for your protection against the religious spirit so that our eyes would not be blinded from seeing revival here. Touch our hearts, Lord, that we may be consecrated to you, surrendered to you, surrendered to the work that you're doing here, not our own comfort and not our own sense of what is right. We do not want to be like the Pharisees, Lord, who missed the Son of God in their midst. We don't want to miss what you're doing. We don't want to miss, thereby neglecting the work of your Spirit here. God, we thank you for what you are doing and what you will continue to do here at Trinity. 
Not only here at Trinity, but all across this nation, Lord. Lord, we, we believe you are going to move in power, that there is a great awakening in, in, among us, Lord. That you will release the kingdom of God in a great measure so that the lost will come to know you in masses. You are going to move in power so that your church will no longer be powerless, but have the power of the Holy Spirit guiding our every action, empowering our every ministry, and enlarging your kingdom here on earth. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, on this small corner in Waterloo, that it may go forth from here and spread out to this whole region, to this city, this nation, and to the ends of the earth, so that your name would be praised, your name would be glorified and honored. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We live for you. We're here for you. We honor your presence, for Lord, and we wait for you. In the name that is above all names, in the name of the one who died for our sins, who has washed us clean by the blood of the Lamb, in the name of the one by which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, In the name of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Son of the living God, the coming King of kings, we pray. Amen.